0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Welcome to the Olive Podcast.
1: I'm Janine, Olive's deputy editor and podcast host, and each episode I'll be catching up with chefs, cuckoo writers, and characters from the food scene in Britain and beyond join us each week to expand your food knowledge as our guests share 10 things we need to know about the specialist subject and do listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where they also reveal their top cooking cheats hacks and shortcuts I'm delighted to welcome Amy Newsom to the podcast today Amy is a horticulturist and garden designer food writer and beekeeper based in London. Her new book, Honey Recipes from a Beekeeper's Kitchen, is a celebration of this magical ingredient and brings together a huge amount of expert knowledge, stories, and advice along some lovely creative recipes to make at home. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for coming to chat to us. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I believe you've been at the Chelsea Flower Show all week.
2: Yes, um, in complete coincidence, I've actually been working on building a Chelsea Main Avenue show garden, which is celebrating insects, all about insects. Amazing.
1: I can't wait to see that one. I'm going to check it out on TV later. (laughs) Um, So, before we take a deep dive into all things honey, could you share a bit about your journey and your inspiration for writing the book?
2: So, I'm a gardener and garden designer, as well as a sort of a cook and a beekeeper. And I changed careers into all of those things at once, um, because my mental health was dipping from working in an office job in central London. And I started growing in my back garden and getting into bees. And it just made me feel so much better. So no, no matter how you felt about yourself, um, when you watch something grow that you've that you've planted yourself, or when you're very slowly looking after the bees and watching them go about their daily lives, it just makes you uh, feel like you can do some good in the world yeah. and so it kind of went from there
1: okay so you so you went into beekeeping gardening and then gradually moved into that sort of garden design. I think you said earlier that you you come from a family of garden designers, is that right?
2: Well, I come from a family of gardeners so we, I uh, grew up with um, my granddad being a head greenkeeper and groundsman so sitting on the back <laughs> of big lawn ro- rollers when I was a child and then actually me and my mum, which unfortunately after my granddad passed away but me and my mum both retrained in as gardeners and oh, garden wow. designers at the same time um, and uh, then we looked into our family records and it goes as far back as five generations. They were professional market growers. It's
1: in your blood, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you come to write the book?
2: Well, I am a really, really keen home cook and I got into growing and beekeeping because of how much I love food and that satisfaction of going from the full, I guess you call it, bloom to plate.
1: Yeah. uh, If we go as far (laughs) as
2: gardening as well. But um, and I just sort of got immediately interested in how food is made getting really close to making really good quality food yeah um and cooking with fresh produce and so through the beekeeping and the growing and growing uh, in kitchen gardens i've worked in a couple of quite famous kitchen gardens um it sort of came out of there really yeah
1: Did you? Did I read that you worked at Le Manoir? Yeah, that's the ultimate kitchen garden, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I
2: think it's been uh, Le Manoir's been growing their own for about thirty-five years, and it's an amazingly slick operation in the kitchen gardens, and their work is absolutely incredible. And I volunteered there when I was first starting out. They were kind enough to let me uh, run run riot in their veg garden, and I didn't really look back from that.
1: I mean, the book's amazing because it's not. It's not just a celebration of honey and the recipes that you can use honey for, but you also go through, like, the beekeepers' year, honey varietals, um, you know, lots of information about gardening and bees, and um, we'll be touching on that as we go through the podcast. But let's jump in with the source of honey the honeybee which sadly is in decline he said well the honeybee itself is actually not in decline okay. it's i mean it suffers
2: from from many pests and diseases which right. as a as a sort of beekeeping community we're doing our best to help with But actually, what's in decline is the over 250 species of wild bee that we have in the UK. So when we talk about saving the bees, uh, we should really be thinking about our wild bees because honeybees are bred livestock and and people look after them. Yeah, of course. So
1: you're you're kind of keeping them
2: alive, basically. Yeah. You're
1: keeping them going. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And then a lot, unfortunately, sort of when as with uh, many different industries and pastimes, people got very excited about beekeeping uh, quite a few years ago and it became really popular, especially in cities. And now we've realised that um, it really grew very unsustainably. And so the move now is sustainable beekeeping, so much smaller scale, so there's enough forage to go around, but also so that we're not impacting our wild species. So is that because,
1: you know, in practical terms, the bees need to go to going to be able to find plants to get the nectar from to make honey But so, if there's too many bees, there just isn't enough to sustain them.
2: Yeah, exactly. And also, when you introduce a a honeybee hive into a a local environment, Mm -hmm. that's about sort of anywhere upwards of 30,000 bees in one go. Whereas a lot of different species (laughs) of wild bees just live on their own or in really small groups. So, it, it has quite a big impact on the ecosystem and the available nectar and flowers. So, we need to be planting as many plants for bees and other pollinators as possible, but also being quite careful to Um, introduce honeybees in a very sensitive way to the environment. What kind of things can people plant
1: at home? Well, I think
2: the important thing is to look at your garden and see what's not flowering. Do you have a few months of the year where something isn't flowering? And then look up something that flowers during that time so that these pollinators have got something to go for throughout the season. But in terms of specific plants, trees actually are really brilliant. If you can plant a small tree in your garden, the amount of flowers that that produces just per one plant is really impactful. So something like a native hawthorn tree that's blooming at the moment all over and they look absolutely beautiful. They really attract loads of bees or apples and cherry trees and then also looking at uh plants that work for different species of bees so for example bumblebees have longer tongues and they love to go for plants like (laughs) foxgloves so if you've got a slightly shady corner growing a few foxgloves is great for bumblebees like the common carder
1: bee i love that um let's talk about beekeeping the practice because it's ancient isn't it but i read in your book that um before we learned how to do it, there was a much more rustic method of gathering. Tell us about that. Tell us about wild honey hunting. Yeah, so wild honey hunting is practiced still in communities all over the world today.
2: Um, The earliest evidence that we have, we think at the moment, is uh, Neolithic because there are cave paintings all over the world. Some of the most famous ones are in Spain. And it's where... um, Honeybee colonies are uh, living in the wild. Often it's um, in slightly warmer climates where it's Apis dorsata, the Asian honeybee, yeah. and they build these huge honeycombs that just hang off pres- precipices yeah. so you said, really high up. And so these communities will uh, gather some really tall ladders and climb up to get them, obviously, with no <laughs> beekeeping suits, as we often wear in Europe, um, and harvest the comb, and they'll eat also the uh, the grubs, the the bee larvae yeah. inside the cone is a great form of protein.
1: I mean, it sounds terrifying.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it does. <laughs>
1: take us through the honey making process how how do the bees actually do it
2: So honey itself is made from flower nectar, and flowers and plants produce nectar as a reward for pollination to attract bees to pollinate the flower so that the plants can reproduce. And the bees will uh, drink the flower nectar straight out of the flower, um, depending on the species, long enough for their tongues, although some bees rob where they chew a hole in the side of the flower (laughs) so they can get in that way. Um, And then through uh, enzymes in their stomach, that starts a process that Mm. converts the flower nectar into honey, and then it gets—it's um, called stropping, but it's uh, which is a nice term for regurgitating many times <laughs> between bees to further reduce the moisture content. Um, and as the enzymatic uh, process uh, continues, um, it's then deposited into little hexagonal cells um, and further evaporated down, and then wow. it becomes honey.
1: You've obviously done a huge amount of like research and you know, looking into the whole beekeeping world. How did you, when you started, how much did you know about it? Was it something that you have just gradually learnt and learnt and learnt more of? Yeah, I'm a massive nerd, so
2: (laughs) one of the reasons why I've got a bit of a multi-hyphenate career at the moment is because I just get really interested in different things and then want to do them all at the same time, and then Mm -hmm. they end up inspiring each other. So with beekeeping, I bought a few (laughs) books on it and then joined my local beekeeping association uh, and went from there in terms of doing their beginner's training, and I was completely hooked because the first time you open a beehive, you sort of, from the movies or... popular media, you expect it to be sort of a a raging inferno of insects that come up off the roof. And that's not what happens. You just see these very gentle insects going about their daily business and then you gently sort of inspect them and then take the honey.
1: Amazing. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about the honey. You've got a lovely phrase, Blossom Tawar, to describe the varieties of honey. And you say it's very similar to wine in that sense. Tell us a bit about that. So
2: it sounds... Fairly pretentious, I think, to to use the phrase blossom terroir, but I'm really passionate about it because good honey which to me means minimally processed honey, small batch honey, uh, Mm. does taste of the landscape exactly Mm. where it's from because bees forage within one to three miles around their hives and each flower nectar tastes different. So depending on the plants that are growing around a beehive, the resulting honey will taste different if it hasn't been um, overly processed. And unfortunately, if you go in a supermarket and buy the cheapest honey off Mm. the shelf, um, it will have been processed usually from multiple countries, multiple nations, and quite highly sort of blended and also heated as well, often pasteurised. And unfortunately, this kills all of those local flavours. So yeah. going for a small batch good honey, you get those uh,
1: very distinctive plant flavours. Yeah. And you can you mentioned the British Beekeepers Association before, because um, I saw that website address in your, in your book and went on it to find out if I had any local beekeepers in North London, and I do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's a great shout for people, that they can go on there, find people who, who are making it and possibly selling it, and you can actually have honey that's, you know two minutes away from your door.
2: Yeah I think it's a great way of supporting sort of local food production and also is a great way of if you're if you are enthusiastic about beekeeping but perhaps you live in an area where there's already quite a few honeybee hives and and we wouldn't want to add more of them then find your local beekeeping association buy the local honey and get involved in their workshops instead and that's one way that you can enjoy it but yeah certainly your local beekeeping associations are a great way to find your local honey. Yeah
1: there's a lovely varietals decoder in the book where you talk about all the different types of honey you can get. Um, some of them I recognise, some of them are a bit rarer. And you yeah. can actually pair those varietals with foods that they complement as well, can't you, in cooking?
2: Yeah, there's sort of the I guess you could say that the number of different honey flavours is completely limitless because mm. it's whatever is growing around beehives and all over the world you've got so many different landscapes and flora growing that you get this incredible range of flavours. So with the book I decided to pair every recipe with a particular honey varietal or a adapted honey, so I have garlic fermented honey mm. and, and home smoked honey, which are things that I like to <laughs> mess around in the kitchen making and then suddenly got very excited and paired them with a lot of things in the book. But yeah, so it's not to say that you need to go out and buy that very specific honey if you want to make that recipe, but it's an inspiration starting point to say, actually, you can pair all these really interesting honeys with lots of different foods and there's, yeah. there's something to go with every honey, no matter how sort of unexpectedly dark, rich and bitter yeah. it is it might go really
1: well in a cocktail. Oh, yeah, amazing. (laughs) Another fascinating thing you said is honey never goes off because we think of food as something that's got a shelf life, don't we? But but tell us why it doesn't go off. Because the process that bees have put so much hard work into to make
2: honey from yeah. flower nectar is partly to create a shelf-stable product. So they've put in all that work yeah. to make it naturally preserve. And part of that is that the um, enzyme reactions that happen in the bee's stomach mean that the resultant honey has these antimicrobial, antibacterial properties anyway, which is great for shelf storage, but also that moisture evaporation process. Yeah. If it was left as flower nectar, it would ferment and that's a bit like how we make mead, the honey booze is by mixing water with honey and then it ferments and becomes alcoholic whereas bees are trying to stop fermentation in this case so that you can create something that stores. So handily the bees have done all of that preserving for us so we don't need to add any form of preservatives. Honey doesn't go off at all but it may crystallise sooner or later depending on the honey Um, and if you sort of have put your honey in a very moist environment then it might start to ferment but beyond that it's quite limitless as to how Long it can keep for,
1: yeah. And, and crystallisation doesn't mean it's gone off. It's fine to use, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's an,
2: it's annoying, and yeah. I completely understand how it's really irritating. Exactly. And suddenly you put your spoon in, and it can bend your spoon yeah. sometimes. <laughs> However, it's a very natural part of the process, and particularly with um, good honeys, they might crystallise sooner or later, and that's because of the proportion of fructose to glucose in the original flower nectar. So it's a completely natural part of the process. Yeah. As you say, you can. And just put it in a, uh, a bowl of warm water yeah. and it will slowly loosen off um, and it's something to kind of just respect that it's a natural ingredient it changes over time a bit like wine doesn't stay perfect forever it does have a going off date.
1: yeah let's talk a bit about how to buy as not everyone will have access to that lovely local honey so what should we be looking for on the label if if we are in a shop or a supermarket so unfortunately at the moment in the UK
2: we're in a situation where honey only needs to say on it a blend of EU and non-EU honeys as sort of the bare minimum of where it comes from. And obviously, again, with the the wine comparison, if you went into (laughs) your local wine shop looking for red wine and all you got was a bank of red wine that didn't say anything about it other than a blend of EU and non-EU wines, you'd be pretty disappointed. And it's those honeys that at the moment, unfortunately, are highly likely to be adulterated because we're getting a lot of cheap honeys coming in from overseas with very obscure... um, supply chains and often often there is sugar in that honey, either from being mixed into the honey or from being fed to the bees right before harvesting the honey. So it's gone through the bee's gut, but it's still not pure honey. So whilst that um, labelling issue is being resolved and we're campaigning for that, I'd really advise people to choose honeys that says very clearly where it's from, a very specific country, preferably much more local than that, a specific region, a specific type of honey, because then you will know that it's going to be, hopefully, 100% pure honey and really good honey.
1: And like all these things, if someone's shouting, because they don't have to put it on the label, if they're really shouting about where it's from... And all of those different details, it's probably a good honey.
2: Yeah, exactly. And honey is not cheap to produce unless you are producing it badly and unethically like this, unfortunately, the honey that's coming in from overseas. So in the meantime, it's kind of one of those things where spend as much as you can afford and treat it as like a little special thing to have and like maybe swap out your flavours. So once you've got to the end of one flavour of honey jar, then try a different one. And don't expect it to be your kind of mainstream sweetness that you can buy super cheaply because it's not good for the industry or the bees yeah
1: I think it's it's interesting that we we have an idea in our head of the flavor profile of honey and honey flavored things but actually as you've been saying honey's got so many different shades of of flavor so so yeah look out for those local ones or those specialist ones um lastly let's talk a bit about cooking because there are tons of recipes in the book and some best practices because we don't want to kill that flavor with too much heat do we
2: Yeah, depending on how you're cooking with honey, what I would usually say to do is add it as late as you can in the cooking process, because in the making of good honey from a beekeeper extracting from a beehive point of view, we um, try not to heat it at all because you preserve as many floral aromas as possible. So the same logic follows into cooking, although that doesn't mean that you can't put honey in a cake and it tastes amazing. I've tried and there are several (laughs) recipes in the book as a result. Um, But there's a few things to just bear in mind when you are baking with honey, for example, is that again, because of that fructose to glucose ratio in flour nectar compared to baking with regular sugar, honey browns quicker, it caramelizes quicker. So you've got to slightly adjust your oven time so that your, your cake does overly brown. But you do get this wonderful, much more complex flavour than you would if you were baking with white sugar, for example. And sometimes my recipes will have, still have white sugar in there as a baseline stable sweetness. And then honey is an extra layer of complexity on top Ah. of that. So you get the best of both worlds in your baking. And also because good honey is expensive. You know, putting a whole jar into a cake is quite a luxurious act, I think.
1: Yeah, there's quite a funny story in the book about you trying to make a meringue from honey. I am so (laughs) stubborn. And I love meringues.
2: The And when I when I say meringue, I mean the pavlovas that you make yeah. in your oven that have a crunchy top, not yeah. the ones that you need to blow toward. For me, okay. that's not a meringue. <laughs> but um, so I love making pavlova. And so I was damned if I wasn't going to be able to put a honey pavlova <laughs> into the book. However, um, obviously, as many pastry chefs will know, I am not a pastry chef. I had to go on this journey myself. But um, meringues are sort of, they're very, te- like... Um, temperamental, shall we say. Yeah, and moisture content is absolutely key. And the way that uh, sugar and moisture behaves is key. And meringues are sort of done and dusted. And obviously, I was trying to fiddle with them. But I found when I was making meringues, (laughs) I tried to put in all honey. And I ended up creating something that was like a really good uh, biodegradable version of floristry oasis. And it tasted absolutely vile, (laughs) but it probably would absolutely save the floristry industry in terms of sustainability, <laughs> but I would not recommend it. However, I did get to a result of using it and just a little bit of a really nice floral honey and it created a really Amazing. great meringue. So
1: that's exactly as you said before, using sugar for the bulk of it, but then added your honey as the flavour exactly. ingredient.
2: Yeah, I should have known at the beginning, actually, the quality rather than quantity was the way to go.
1: <laughs> and then tell us about fermenting
2: with honey, because I know
1: you're a huge fan of that. How does that
2: work? So it works by... Um, basically sort of undoing some of the work that those bees did and really trying to create uh, a honey that's got a uh, moisture content low enough to store right. so you add moisture back into it oh. um so you can so you can do that in various ways and if you depending on the honey flavor that you want to create so for example i love cooking savory recipes obviously with garlic fermented honey yeah. And when you want to create a flavored fermented honey, it's the moisture in what you add that then ferments the honey itself. Oh, so you and put they the work flavor together. bucket. So they're kind of. So if you put like a raw, lots of raw garlic cloves, yeah. like lightly, lightly smashed into uh, a jar of honey, honey is hygroscopic. So it will draw moisture out of the atmosphere or anything that it comes into contact with. So it draws the moisture out of the garlic and in turn that ferments the honey and then it infuses oh, with the garlic oh. flavor and you get this amazing very savoury
1: fermented garlic honey, which is really good for cooking It with. sounds absolutely delicious. And you mentioned drinks before. What kind of drinks do you use honey in? I really like
2: making cocktails at yeah. home.
1: I really <laughs> took after sort of
2: the Stanley Tucci COVID lockdown uh, cocktail hour trend. I got really into it. Um, but I find cocktails are a great medium for really characterful honeys. Yeah. So something like, um, like a chestnut honey or an oak honey, which Sounds a bit strange because people think, okay, they don't have really big sherry flowers that produce nectar, but bees also drink the honeydew, which is what aphids produce when they feed on trees. So they'll feed on the tree sap, they'll produce honeydew bees farm that and that makes forest honeys as the category is called. And they tend to be really rich and dark and bitter in flavour. So um, they're really good for cocktails because if you're pairing like a oak honey with a whiskey yeah. for example, that's really interesting because you often use sugar syrup or gum in cocktail making. Yeah. Why not use honey? It's already liquid and it's got so many more floral aromas than gum does. Yeah. And so it's a really great way to kind of change things around. So you could make like a, a bees needs cocktail with honey as well um, or I like to make a, uh, a sesame old-fashioned cocktail. Yeah. I'm just obsessed with sesame. It's in a lot of recipes <laughs> in the book. <bucket.
1: laughs> <laughs> they sound great. Pick a couple of favourite recipes from the book for me. Mm. In terms of sheer popularity
2: and yeah. what I get asked to make a lot, one of them is my double plum ribs recipe, oh, yeah. which is kind of a classic sort of baby back ribs vibe it uh the pork goes super tender it it melts off the bone and it was something that when i made when we shot the photography for the book it just disappeared in a scratch <laughs> without even asking permission <laughs> to eat the dish after shooting it just disappeared and the clean bones were left so it was a sign of it had gone down really well and it's called double plum because it's got fresh plums in but it's also got umeboshi which is fermented japanese wow. plum paste so you get this like really savory fruity jammy uh, slow cooked rib recipe Lovely. which is really great and then what else would I go for hmm. I'm actually going to pick a guest recipe because it's so okay. iconic and so important to I would say sort of Contemporary cooking culture, which is uh, Michelle Polzine who is a uh, Californian pastry chef, yes. and she used to run the iconic 20th Century Cafe in San Francisco, really known for her amazing, uh, her amazing baking and her amazing cakes. She's famous for a ten-layer honey cake. Oh yeah, which is a take on a, a yeah an Austrian Rus- layered oh, cake. Uh, yeah,
1: I've had Russian honey cake Yeah, I'm sure it's the same one. Exactly, really thick yeah. sponges with the cream in
2: between. Yeah. yeah, so there are variants of that cake from Russia through to Ukraine, Austria. Um, And Michelle's version um, slightly burns the honey, which I usually would not countenance, but it tastes incredible (laughs) in this case, and I have huge respect for Michelle's work. You allowed
1: it. Yeah, well,
2: I allowed it, and also she allowed me to to use the recipe, which is really great. So we've popped um, Michelle's honey cake into the book, and I'm super proud of it, because it's absolutely delicious. And then I've done a bit of a spin-off of that in the sense of there's a great coffee and walnut version, so I've gone for a sort of a British tea time class, Spin on Michelle's Californian cake. And then also um, using some of that burnt honey and the Dolce de Leche that goes into the cake as well to make a really great no churn ice cream.
1: Okay, I'm completely starving now, <laughs> even though I've already had my lunch. Um, And just to recap, if people want to buy the book, it's out now. And it's called Honey Recipes from a Beekeeper's Kitchen. But thank you so much for coming to chat to us today, Amy. If people want to keep in touch with you, is Instagram the best place? Yeah, follow me on Instagram, the Botanical Beekeeper. So it's at the Botanical Beekeeper. Brilliant. Thanks again for coming to chat to us, Amy. It's been brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Olive Podcast. For recipes and more information, head to olivemagazine.com do remember to listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where our guests reveal their best cooking cheats hacks and shortcuts and don't forget to subscribe at itunes acast spotify or wherever you get your podcasts